Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Hannah White, and I'm director of the IFG, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this final session of our one-day conference today. And uh, in this final session, we're going to be discussing what makes a good minister. Um, our Ministers Reflect archive contains interviews with ministers uh, from uh, the whole sweep of governments, uh, beginning from uh, that led by Margaret Thatcher uh, through to Liz Truss. And what we're interested in discussing in this panel today is uh, what's changed over the last 30 years, uh, what, uh, what being a good minister looks like, uh, and how the role might change in the future. And to discuss all this, I'm joined by a very excellent panel uh, from right to left, Marie Leconte, who is a journalist and author, uh, writes uh, features on British politics uh, for The Eye newspaper, writes book reviews for The Sunday Times, um, and hosts frequent interviews for The Bunker podcast, among many other things that Marie uh, does. Um, to my left, Dame Angela Eagle, uh, who's MP for Wallasey, has been since 1992. Um, was a minister in both the Tony Blair and Gordon Brown's governments, uh, has held a range of shadow cabinet positions, and uh, to declare is on the board of the Institute for Government. Um, to Angela's left, uh, we have Anne Franker, who is CEO of the Chartered Management Institute, uh, the UK's leading professional body for management and leadership, and a reg regular columnist for The Times. Uh, and on my far left, uh, my colleague, Tim Durrant, who is programme director for ministers here at the Institute who leads our work um, uh, on ministers uh, and uh, has, is in charge of the Ministers Reflect archive. Um, so I think you'll agree, an excellent panel to discuss uh, this, this question today. We're going to be tweeting, as always, from IFG events using the hashtag IFG ministers. Um, so please do follow and X if you wish to. Uh, and if you are watching online, or uh, you can send in your questions, as you may have been doing already, by Slido. So I'm going to start by asking some questions myself to the panel, and then we will uh, go to questions from the audience uh, online and in the room. Um, so Angela, I wanted to start with you. Um, you uh, are the only panellist who has actually held ministerial office. What would you say are the key elements of the role of a minister, and is it possible to be good at all of them? <coughs> um, well, uh, I, I think it's different at different levels of ministerial office, so I held all kinds of um, different posts, but never a cabinet post. I think that the strategic issues that cabinet ministers have to deal with are slightly different to the work of... Uh, more junior ministers. Um, so that's the first thing to say. It, it does depend on context. It also very much depends on um, how active you are expected to be because of what your manifesto has said about what your particular department is doing. So you might be in a rush, you might be in a spending department, you might be having to do different things in the treasury, uh, etc. So everything has a context. Um, I also think that uh, trying to uh, get a handle on the department, get on top of your particular brief, um, which the civil service are very good at allowing you to do, knowing when to ask the right questions and chase things up is very important. I think being curious about what's going on and having a, a, a breadth of view about what's going on, identifying clearly 
um, what your priorities are, because in my experience, and it may have changed, the system is very good at allowing you to focus on your priorities if they know what your priorities are. Um, you have to also um, keep an eye on the politics of it, with a large P and a small P. Um, civil servants aren't always brilliant at the politics of anything. They tend to be quite technical. They tend to be very departmentally focused, also quite siloed often. And so they'll be very interested in um, having a row with the Treasury or making sure that their pet projects are taken up. Certainly when I'd left office, I saw the appearance of several of the things I'd stopped happening. Um, in particular <laughs> departments when I was there, and it's like, oh, that one, that one's turned up. So there is, a, you know, the, the, there are sort of um, departmental priorities that aren't the government's and, and that you need to sort of watch out about. And you also need to keep very much in touch with your own political party in Parliament and remember um, why you're there and what you're trying to do. So. Um, I don't think it's possible to be good at absolutely every aspect of government as a minister. Um, different ministers have different strengths. Uh, it's possible to be bad at all of them. <laughs> uh, and, it, and it becomes quite clear quite quickly, the people who are bad at all of them. And often they're not the people you expect to be bad at all of them. So prioritisation, being very clear with officials, trying to work together as a team, communicating properly, being able to communicate with your colleagues in the house. It, there are very, very many different things you have to do. Um, I, for one, hated the speech writing facilities for junior ministers, doggerel, couldn't use it. And I'll give you one example and leave it there. Um, several days after I'd been made an environment minister, I hadn't concentrated on the environment at all up until that point, until I ended up in the then DETR doing environmental <coughs> things. And uh, at, at the beginning of um, a week, I was told that we had the annual environment debate in the House of Commons um, on the Wednesday morning, when we used to have debates in the morning in the chamber before Westminster Hall was created. And they gave me a draft speech in my Monday box, evening box, which was rubbish, really bad, very, very narrowly based, only the environment, nothing about cross-departmental things or the environment more generally, more holistic, any of that. I scribbled all over it, saw my private office, said, well, look, I want some more about this. We've not mentioned what's going on in transport. What about such and such and such and such? It came back in my Tuesday box, remembering I had to be on my feet in the House of Commons on Wednesday morning virtually unchanged. <laughs> and so I thought, right, this is awful. So I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll go into the House of Commons library and I'll look to see what was said at last year's um, <laughs> annual. <coughs> so I did that. And to my horror, <laughs> I realized that the speech that I had been given was virtually word for word the same as they'd given the Tory minister the year before. Um, and so on my way, so I had to write my own speech that night. In the in the uh, in the in the House of Commons library because they'd all gone home obviously, um, and so on the way in, um, and I was up against Selwyn Gummer who'd been the Secretary of State. You know, I was probably the person in in the chamber that day who knew the least about what I was talking about, um, 
and I'd written my speech on the way and I said, this is word for word, virtually word for word, what you put in the Tory minister's mouth last year. And they said, but nothing's changed, Minister. <laughs> and I said, but the government's changed. And so trying to get people to understand that will get you somewhere. But you do have to watch, you know, cut, paste, change the date, and press return, and then press print. Very good story. Um, Marie, looking from the outside, mm. what would you say a successful minister needs to be able to do? Um, well, I think replying to my texts is very important. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, more seriously, I'm quite happy because I've made a list of five things, and I think um, Angela mentioned three of them, so I think I'm not entirely off track. Um, but no, so I, I've read um, a lot of the ministers' reflect interviews, arguably too many. I don't know why. I find them really, um, really compelling. But um, no, so I would say they're because kind they of, are yeah, compelling. But they're very good. They're just really. <laughs> Everybody ought to um, read them. <laughs> And then, but, but I'm also always quite struck by how candid um, they are. But no, so I guess like, the five things I've kind of identified are probably like, A, like adaptability, which is kind of stating the obvious, but you read so many of those interviews and they say, well, you know, that's not the department I wanted. I didn't know anything about this topic. It's not all, you know, I hated all the other ministers in my department, et cetera, et cetera. So I think just being able to be sort of like dropped somewhere and, you know, stand back up and go, okay, fine, I think is a big thing. Uh, the second one, I think, is nailing the people stuff, because as far as I can tell, again, from the outside, so much of being a minister is dealing with the civil service, with the spans, with number 10, with parliament, with stakeholders, etc. So I think, A, hiring the right people to be around you um, as special advisors, getting to really know your private office, and understanding the politics, I think, of the civil service as well, because... It doesn't, I mean, again, this is very much from the outside, but it strikes me that Whitehall is not entirely different from Parliament in that there will be people who don't have an especially glamorous job title, but they're still the people you need to go to if you need anything done. Or opposite, you know, kind of people who have very fancy job titles, but everyone kind of works around them because they're quite useless. Um, so, so, yes, I think naming the people stuff is important. Then having defined objectives as well, I think, and that may be because I think a lot of the people you've interviewed for it and a lot of people, like the ministers I know from the past few years, have worked in unusual circumstances. But you, know, you, you never know when there's going to be a reshuffle. You never know when there's something massive that's going to happen. That means you can't achieve anything anymore. So I think having a kind of set maybe of like quite small objectives that you can do on the short term and say, OK, this is actually small but manageable, but also at the same time having a broader sense of where you'd like the department or your brief to go on the kind of yeah, long run and say, how can we start making this happen? And it's unlikely I'll be the one kind of finishing that, but if I can sort of like slowly move the tank, but also do a few things in the meantime. Um, then yet yeah, curiosity as well, and I think that's linked to the people stuff, but really understanding your brief, really understanding the civil servants in your department, et cetera. So really being keen to, yeah, to really understand, I think, how everything works and not having, I think, quite a lot of ministers can have, especially with the kind of less sexy jobs, can have a bit of an attitude of thinking, well, you know, I'm just going to try and do a good enough job and just wait for the next promotion until I can get the job I actually want. Um, and then, you know, as a result, usually don't get the job they actually want. Um, and then, yeah, the last thing I think is actually just self-awareness. Um, so I, remember, I can't remember who it was, but there was quite a funny Minister's Reflect interview of someone who said he'd been dropped at the DWP and I think who said, I am terrible at numbers. Like, if there's one thing I cannot do, it is numbers. And I got dropped in this job where my entire gig was basically having to deal with numbers, which is something I could not do. Um, but I found that quite striking because I thought 
it was probably quite a good thing for that minister to say, to be able to go to you know, the private office, to the spas and go, this is not, I, I could not do the number side of this, that you're going to have to help me, I'm going to have to delegate, etc. So I think whatever your you know, good points and bad points are, I think being aware of what they are and being quite open with others as well, saying I will need help with this or like that stuff, I can absolutely lead, like, you know, I'm happy to meet with anyone, etc. Um, probably means that you'll be a better minister at least. Um, but yes, these were my, my five things. It strikes me that both of what you said highlights potentially a sort of a problem with how we appoint ministers, because both of what you said about needing to be a good minister is about how to cope when you're in a situation where you either can't do a job that you know, or you're not interested in a job that you've been appointed to, or you know, you're hoping for a different job, and so you're doing one job with a view to trying to get a different job. Mm. Does, should that be telling us something about the way in which we go about putting ministers into jobs. Hmm. Oh, absolutely. What was it? Um, there was another great one. Again, I have read so many of them. It's, I'm now slightly judging myself. But there's a great one that starts with, well, you know, I had a chat with the chief um, who said, would you be interested in this job? And he said, no, I would not. I would be bad at it. And it's not something I want to do. And he was saying, anyway, three months later, the chief calls back and is like, you're getting that job. <laughs> um, so, so again, and that person could not have been clearer that that's not a job they wanted or thought they would be good at. So no, a absolutely. You know, and I think that kind of government by post-it um, is not always the best way to do things, but I don't know. I, 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 I mean, politics, I think a reshuffle is a rubrics yeah. cube, isn't it? Yeah. And mm. um, I mean, I've never been in a bargaining situation to have a job. I just got what I was given. So mm. maybe that says something about me, but, but I, th I think that, you can take any job so long as you're willing to learn and be properly briefed. And all of my jobs in government were really interesting. The one I probably enjoyed the most was obviously the Treasury because um, I was in charge of taxing all vices, which was immediately <laughs> interesting. Um, and and <clears throat> I, I got to do lots of technical detailed jobs like in the DWP um, I did all the, I was pensions minister, so I did all of the um, very complex regulations that put NEST uh, into being after the, the, uh, the primary legislation had been on the statute book. It, it had to be um, made to work properly. And so that sort of really detailed stuff, I, I just think it's really important that you, you're on the case of the people that are drafting legislation as a minister um, and you and, and you you get them in ahead of them drafting it so that you can talk about give them the direction they need to draft it properly um, and so it's important to be really on top at the right time of the technical details and the the expertise in Parliament is there and in and particularly in the in, in particular departments some are better at it than others but I do get the impression over time as a, you know, it's been um, 13 years since I was in government. I think that drafting has got lazier. There's so many more amendments now. Things are done afterwards. And to me, that is a sign of the ministers not being on top of um, those that are drafting at the right stage. Oh, we'll fix it later in the Lords instead of getting it right to begin with. Anne, we've talk quite a lot about the sort of policy, legislative um, uh, <coughs> detail responsibilities that ministers have. But of course, and um, uh, Marie's also touched on uh, the role of ministers as, as leaders and as managers. What makes a good 
leader and a manager, and can you apply um, the, what you might say about that in the real world to the world of ministers? Mm. So I've been listening to this with great interest, interest because not, not only Marie, but Angela, they've both described traits that um, you need to succeed as a minister, which quite frankly are also traits you need to succeed as a manager and leader. You need to be able to set clear objectives. You need to be able to prioritize. You need to be able to communicate. You need to be able to handle what Marie is calling the people stuff. You do need to have a sense of what it is that you're supposed to do and how you might do it. Um, and what I find so interesting is um, that, that, that in government, especially government today, um, th there's, there's just seemingly an, a, a, almost an absence of um, good governance in government. Um, because some of the behaviors that we're experiencing, and actually so much of what these points are, I would disagree with Angela on one point, I don't think much about technical competence. I think that actually, if you look at leadership values, they're much more important about how you are behaving rather than your technical competence. And I think one of the problems we have in Britain is that we prioritize technical competence over behavior. Um, and that results in what we call you know, the accidental manager syndrome, which 82% you know, of people appointed into managerial roles um, uh, are uh, basically left untrained. They're, they've been appointed because of their functional competence. So you mean that in general, in, yes. as opposed yeah. to this politics? A, yes, yeah. I, I'm sure it's yeah. higher in politics, um, if it's possible to be higher in politics. Um, and I just think that that's really, really important. And so what I think we would need to do to get government, government to be better governed is absolutely make it a requirement because fundamentally these MPs, if you like, are public entrepreneurs. They're managing a staff, they're managing policy choices, they're managing an office. They, they need to be trained in how to do that and how to behave, um, how to treat other people, how to communicate clearly, how to set priorities, how to make these trade-offs that, 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 that we've been highlighting they need, how to be agile. And I think it would be much more effective um, if they were, and also to just be mindful, the self-awareness point is so important. Um, you know, you do create a tone from the top, and I do realize that, you know, the tone from the top that we're here being played out in the WhatsApp messages of the day is perhaps not the tone from the top that 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 it, it would be the the best manifestation of good a good government. Um, but it is very important because you can see how that radiates and shapes the behaviors. Um, so that's why I do think that the cultural awareness of good management leadership practices on the part of ministers is extremely important. I mean, can I just say, I never thought my job as a minister was to manage the department. That's explicitly a civil service thing to do. And um, I mean, and I know that some people who've been ministers are very frustrated by that because they want to try to manage the department. But of course, the permanent secretary is meant to be doing that. You can probably have a little bit of a say on who is in your private office. Um, but it would be, um, it certainly wasn't the case when I was a minister that people could be sacked or moved um, on by ministerial diktat. Uh, so, you're in a situation where you're working with people, but you're not always choosing who they are. 
and you certainly don't have the power to get rid of them or sack them. Now, what's coming out of the COVID inquiry at the moment seems slightly different, um, but, but certainly um, it was a peculiar situation when I was a minister in that, you know, you're in a situation which might be a, a managerial kind of situation in any other place, but actually you're not... You're but not what I'm area. referring to is not the managerial situation. I'm referring to the leadership situation, which is really about behaviors. Yeah. So I'm talking about how you behave and whether or not you are, you know, overseeing the appointment. I respect what you say, that you don't have that control. How you behave, how you approach your work, how you prioritize the tone you set from the top as a leader, that really does radiate and manifest itself in how the people all around you are oh, going to behave. I agree with that. Tim, what does the archive tell us about this question of, of leadership versus management and mm -hmm. how ministers themselves see, see their role? Uh, I mean, it's a fascinating question. And as Angela says, there are a few, quite a few people who complain about the fact that they weren't able to manage sort of in a traditional management relationship with the civil servant. So I think particularly people who have a career in large organisations. So we were talking this morning about the benefits of ministers who've worked in large organisations, whether private sector, public sector, whatever it might be, because then at least they have a kind of understanding of, you know, you don't necessarily know everyone's name. You don't necessarily know everything that's happening in this building, but your job is to set its direction, give it priority and kind of provide the, the, the oomph, I suppose, behind what it's doing. So it, it's helpful if they have that background, but if they have run a business or been senior in business, then they will be used to being able to pick the people they, they want to work with, set the job descriptions for their staff. And as a minister, you can't do that. You, you, you perhaps choose, okay, I want this person to run my private office, um, but you can't really say, okay, well, I want this particular person to be in charge of this project and I want that. You know, you don't have that um, direct oversight. And some people do find that frustrating and some people say, okay, well, this is, this is just kind of how it is. I think, but the other thing that comes back to is, is that question of setting the tone and the leadership. And one of the big themes of the last few years has obviously been the fracturing, I suppose, of the relationship between ministers and civil servants. There's been a lot of critique of the civil service from government ministers, but also conservative backbenchers for a whole host of reasons. Um, and, you know, we're seeing the worst of that, I guess, play out in the COVID inquiry with all the WhatsApps and everything. But actually, that's just the, the, the kind of end point of that process, there's clearly been a breakdown in that relationship and what minister, and I think, you know, we should give credit to the Prime Minister since Rishi Sunak came in, there has been a concerted attempt to kind of rebuild that relationship and take some of the heat out of that because um, there was a recognition that things were getting pretty dysfunctional and, you know, under Boris Johnson, clearly number 10 was not a happy place to be and that kind of filtered through into the rest of government. But also there's trust when she came in, she fired the Permanent Secretary to the Treasury, which even further damage relationships between senior officials and her ministers. So there's, there has been an attempt in the last 12 months to try and kind of get the two sides of government working well together. And I think that's important. It doesn't matter who is kind of writing the job descriptions and employing people. It's more about the culture and mm -hmm. the tone and the kind of relationships. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, it does seem to be rebuilding again. Mm. Angela, I mean, coming up to this point, so how, what, how useful was the experience that you had before coming becoming a minister to becoming a minister? What, was the most, what were the most useful experiences you'd had previously that you brought to that role? And how did you learn to become a minister? Um, well, <clears throat> I think you have to learn by doing. Um, certainly when you come in after a period of 18 years out of office, 
Um, and remember that junior ministers do not have spads. Um, they don't have speechwriters. They don't have special advisors. They're all up doing the important things with the cabinet people, and you're left to um, bump along as best as you can. The best cabinet ministers have <coughs> ministerial meetings, but not all of them do. And so um, I, I was fortunate to work with colleagues um, uh, who did have um, ministerial meetings uh, so that you could have a sort of political thing before you got the, the um, senior advisors or civil servants in at the beginning of the week so you could, you know, see where you were with the stuff that you needed to do. Um, and so quite often as a junior minister, you don't have that support and you're sort of, you're, you, quite often your job is to stop disastrous things happening. Um, and most of the job that you do is never appreciated by anyone because you've stopped <laughs> bad things happening rather than do, do you know, um, doing good things. Quite often if something good's gonna come along, your Secretary of State nicks it <laughs> off you or whatever. And by the way, I actually think that the, um, the sort of lines of um, sort of hierarchy within a government um, can be very demotivating for junior ministers mm. as well. So, for example, Gordon Brown announced the big pension increases and left the Secretary of State for the Department for Work and Pensions to announce the 50p um, pension, for example. So he announced the Winterfield. So sort of nicking things like that. Um, for your budget or whatever um, is quite an uncollegiate way to behave and you see it happening all the time within the hierarchies of the cabinet and government and the poor old junior ministers are just there sort of slogging away in the uh, mines stopping bad things happening and having to do all the debates in Westminster Hall um, uh, and so it is a slog um, but there are also good things that you can do, um, especially if you if you get trusted, you can build up to sort of accrete to yourself a particular section of things that are yours that you can concentrate on. Now, some ministers, and I, I shan't name them, that I worked with were terrible delegators. You know, it's like they had problem delegating anything. Others were so... Um, generous that they did and they were quite happy to delegate a series of things to the more junior ministers that they could actually um, get some job satisfaction out of. So it's also important, you know, the, the people that you're working with within the ministerial team as well as throughout the government um, and it's helpful if you have people who are generous and, um, and, and will listen to you that you can get to see because um, sometimes they're just so high up there and you're working so far down here, you don't really get much direction from them and then it's, it gets quite difficult. Mm. Maureen, I, wa I wanted a moment to come to you just to explore the, the point that Angela makes about special advisors and the relevance mm. of special advisors to, to the supporting ministers because I know you've done some thinking about that. But I just wanted to pursue first this point, Anne, about um, sort of training of, of leaders Obviously, the Charter Management Institute is, is, has a lot of expertise in this. And expectations, I think, of leaders and, and the support that they expect in their roles have changed over, over recent decades. What, what are the key sort of um, things you would point out that um, 
our support which are received by, by leaders in other sectors that you think that maybe ministers could also benefit from? So some of this is recognizing that the world in which we operate has changed. And I do think that the culture in parliament is in need of a 21st century overhaul. Um, and we were discussing this before. So some of the, and, and people have different views, but some of the behaviors that are deeply ingrained, which is this lack of collegiality, um, you know, the extreme competitiveness, the nicking of stuff from colleagues, um, you know, the, the um, WhatsApping behind people's backs. Um, all of that, that, that stuff is, is, is less conducive to getting effective government. And what people also really need to realize, and this is true in the private sector as well, is that these days nothing's private anymore. Okay, I know we were talking about this, they're gonna set all the WhatsApp messages to disappearing in the future. Um, <laughs> but still, um, social media you know, makes everything discoverable and means that everything that you say can be, is, it can be filmed, can be on record, can be released immediately into the ether. And so you do need to have an awareness that, uh, that ha you know, no matter what time of day or night it is or whatever situation it is, that could become public. And so, you know, it's just this little, this little thing should be telling you, hey, you know what, maybe I should just like uh, have a bit more awareness over how I'm behaving in this moment. Um, I do think training would be very important for, for MPs and ministers about, you know, how to look after themselves, how to work with others that they don't appoint, like the civil service. Actually, it's perfectly possible to develop good relationships with people that you don't appoint. No CEO comes in and fires the whole damn company and brings in all new people. We all need to learn how to work with incumbents to a certain degree. And this adversarialness that seems to permeate is a very um, last century attitude, and it isn't, it is not about good management and leadership. Good managers and leaders do not behave in that way. They are collaborative, they communicate, they have empathy, they have self-awareness. So a cultural overhaul is, I think, what's needed and training. Did you want to come in on that, Angela? Um, I mean, I think that there are some aspects of the way Parliament works that are less adversarial than others. And everyone always mentions PMQs, which is the most adversarial bit of all. Um, almost like the, um, the pantomime Christmas bit. Um, but I think can still demonstrate certain truths. Um, but I think if you look at the way the select committee systems work, mm -hmm. Um, that is very co collaborative mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. in most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you look at the way some of the all-party parliamentary groups work, although there are far too many of them mm -hmm. and there are, you know, some of their funding is slightly iffy, um, if, if, you, if you actually look at things like that, I think there are um, cross-party elements to what happens in Parliament, albeit within the idea that you have a governing party and an opposition and they're trying to set out separate ways of approaches which are in tune with whatever their, their political values are. Um, so I think we've seen that. I agree about the culture um, that, that has happened in Parliament and that we see across the WhatsApp messages at the COVID inquiry now. I mean, maybe I'm fortunate, but WhatsApp didn't exist when I was a minister. Um, that's how new some of these things are. But I certainly would not ever 
put anything in WhatsApp that I didn't expect to be um, uh, sort of broadcast around Times Square. Um, and, and, and clearly, people got into a habit of uh, doing that. If you're looking at the COVID inquiry uh, with the, the revelations, which are incredibly shocking, but not surprising, because you can see how dysfunctional, we could all see how dysfunctional it was while it was going on. We just didn't actually sort of want to believe that it was that bad and we didn't have the actual language um, uh, in front of us at the time. So I think that, you know, um, it's really important that we update our culture in the Commons. Now, I've been there since 1992 and it has changed a lot since then, but not enough. Mm -hmm. First of all, there are now far more women in the Commons than there were when I came in. There were only 60 out of 650 women in 1992 when I came in. We now have over half of the Parliamentary Party, albeit far too small a Parliamentary Party, Parliamentary Labour Party, uh, who are women. Um, we've done a lot of work. There are now about a third of, of, of MPs are women. That is beginning to um, make a change in the culture Things that would have in the past have been dealt with never become public, like you know the tractor porn incident, for example, uh, only became public because female members of the Tory party complained to the chief whip and then it leaked. Now, in the past, nobody would have, you know, it would have been hushed up. So I think we're in this situation where um, behaviour that is unacceptable that was, would have been accepted years ago, and certainly would have when I first went in, um, is now no longer acceptable. But there are still some people and a culture that wishes it was acceptable. And there's a, a sort of lag between the expectations and the reality, which will, which will gradually close. That sort of gap will close. It's not closing fast enough. Um, and the final thing I'd say about that is that sudden general elections make it impossible for political parties to choose their candidates in the normal, careful way that they do. So we've had, we had the snap general election in 2017, um, which had some very uh, sort of people uh, selected who weren't expected to win that ended up totally sort of... Um, not fit to be MPs on both sides of the House, and I think 2019, similarly, a sudden general election. Um, so I think we have to think about that, and certainly that explains some of the extraordinary series of expulsions that we've seen since 2019. Marie, you want to come in on that? Oh, and yeah, I've very been building up another question. Questions I want to ask you. But. Uh, I can move on straight to Spaz afterwards. <laughs> no, no, there's a uh, no, I was going to do the very annoying thing of coming in uh, to talk about something slightly off topic and also to disagree with you slightly. Um, but no, so I do think that one thing I found really interesting actually about the snap elections of 2017 and 2019 is that if you talk to some of the people who got elected, so who are from you know either like single parents from non-traditional political backgrounds, etc., nearly all of them said I never would have stood for Parliament in normal circumstances. I don't have the time, I don't have the money, the resources at all to be a candidate for 18 months. Yeah. And actually the only reason I could stand was because it was like, okay, six weeks, fine, I can just about do that. So I agree with you. I think lots of people got elected who should not have been elected. Um, but at the same time, I think there's probably a balance to be struck where at least parties need to think about some sort of middle ground I between the two. Um, yeah. But no, spans. 
Um, oh, well, actually, yes. before you get to Spuds, um, I wanted you to, uh, just wanted to pick up on Angela's point about WhatsApp and, and how mm. WhatsApp is shaping <laughs> behaviour in, in Westminster. <coughs> you know, is it on balance a good thing? Because uh, of what we see mm. with the COVID inquiry, I mean, this may be the only inquiry where we actually see any weight of WhatsApps. Now everyone's making mm. them disappear. But is it a good tool for transparency in that sense? Or is it driving poor behaviours because things are happening on WhatsApp that ought to be happening um, in formal um, meetings? So I'm just laughing because I wrote a piece on that quite recently and interviewed someone from the Institute for Government. So I guess it's slightly certain you can tell here. But, um, but yes, so I'm happy to. Uh, no, I, oh, I, I don't know. I think I find the WhatsApp thing quite hard to think about or talk about because I think that it was more symptom than problem. Um, in that, I mean, A, I think the really basic thing is that people use WhatsApp a lot during the pandemic as we're planning out the inquiry because lots of them could not be in the same rooms all at the same time. Um, a, but also, B, and I, I'm not convinced that you know WhatsApp came in that everyone was doing everything through official channels and everything is very straight and done, you know, properly and minuted properly. And then WhatsApp came in and everything changed. I think that WhatsApp was able to thrive in Westminster the second it kind of came in because there already was a culture of kind of like blurring the you know the line between informal conversations and formal conversations and blurring the kind of lines between again you know personal and political and personal and professional etc. So I think that. You know, the, the WhatsApp conversations have only really replaced conversations that used to happen informally in the palace anyway. So I think that you could probably argue that WhatsApp groups have slightly changed some social dynamics and as a result, some, you know, dynamics in terms of wider policymaking and kind of, you know, party dynamics. But I'm, yeah, no, I, I'm not, I, I think, yeah, WhatsApp was a symptom rather than um, the illness itself. And then finally, to get to the question I said I was going to ask you, and then I'm going to open up to the floor for questions, so please have those ready. Um, what role for SPADs um, in helping ministers be effective? Um, well, I think the, the, the main thing, which is, I realise not fully answering your question, but you've got to hire the right SPADs if you want them to be good. Like, you know, you look at, not naming names, but over the past few years, quite a lot of secretaries of state end up having, you know, a team of three men called Simon, who are 26 and a half and used to work at CCHQ. Um, and it's a bit like, okay, well, they're not, you know, there's a limit. Even if they're very sharp and very well-meaning, there's only so much they'll be able to do to help you. Um, so, yes, I think, A, just hiring the right people for the right jobs, depending on if you want them to do policy or comms, etc. But then, I mean, again, it's probably just what we talked about earlier. So figuring out the thing, helping a Secretary of State figure out priorities, so even stuff saying, okay, well, you know, let's say X, actually, that's not that important. We can either kick in the long grass or we can take care of this for you. Why you've got to do yourself now, Z, we can talk about it later, etc. So I think that's really helpful for a Secretary of State, but also I think giving them the time and space, especially at the beginning, to kind of figure out what kind of Secretary of State they want to be, what kind of stuff they want to achieve. I think it's probably, again, you know, this is from the outside, but it does seem quite overwhelming to get that new job, be that a minister for the first time, a secretary of state for the first time, you're quite swamped and quite overwhelmed by the amount of stuff you have to do, the amount of people you have to meet, et cetera, et cetera. So I think being able to be a bit of a buffer and going, okay, you know, minister, have a sit down, have a think, um, and, and we'll take care of the kind of, you know, the, the noise for you is probably quite useful. And then honesty as well, I think, just being able to, which is kind of tricky because I think, only a minister who probably doesn't always need very honest advice is likely to hire spads who would feel comfortable being honest with them. Um, but yeah, either saying, okay, well, you know, this, whatever that thing is, is clearly not your strong suit. Can we talk about this? Or saying, you know, you were great at this, let's do more of this, etc. I think being able to have that kind of honest relationship and saying, we'll play to your strength and, you know, try and 
see what we can do about the other stuff. But I think that, again, that requires being able to have that working relationship where the minister will take the advice, uh, which is, I think, not always the case. Because amazingly, big egos in politics. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. Okay, we will take questions in tranches of three. Uh, we have a raving mic. Um, please say who you are and uh, what organization you're from, if you're from an organization. Um, and uh, I've got one or two questions online, but please feel free to uh, pass, uh, send in your questions online. Here's this lady here. Thanks. Rasika, civil servant, DLAC. Uh, my question is more about the psychological aspect of being a minister. Uh, as an MP, uh, I think the predominant thing is to champion local causes and your constituents' uh, needs and necessities. But as a minister, the same MP is far more restrained on what they can say. They've always got to invariably look at the bigger picture and what the one government has to say. Uh, I'm just curious to understand how you might have coped with that transition and how you did manage to strike that balance for the duration that you were in government. Thanks. Great question, thank you. It's gentleman Butner. Hi, uh, Jerry McFall, Bradshaw Advisory. Uh, I, I agree with uh, uh, Angela's point. A lot of it is learning on the job, <laughs> just in life. I think you could be having this conversation anywhere, um, not necessarily about uh, ministers or government. I mean, I work for a large company. Uh, managing a lot of people over different time zones and it comes down to the point I think and you're seeing it with the, the COVID inquiry at, at the moment but I think it's more balanced than what, what you say it comes down to having a you know the technical skills are, are clearly important in terms of execution and delivery but it comes down to the basic fundamental soft skills of life when you're in a senior senior role which is the ability to explain to include to execute uh, and to enable people uh, and those things, that's what I'm saying, I think the conversation could be one for business. And I see this in business, it's all the same. But I agree on the point of training, it's really, really important. But you have to understand what an MP's office is like. It's the weirdest thing. It's 650 different solo units with no HR function. And they're managing personal relationships with no support. And there's a difficulty there. Then they go to move into ministerial office. You know, there's a huge transition to make in terms of managing people. That's and I why think we need the training. Question. Yeah. <laughs> you have a question. The question is 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 really, really one of what one of one of training really and um, actually thinking how what are the qualities I think maybe I would ask to, to Angela that party leaders should look in terms of spot and for what a good minister is, rather than actually just filling a slot just for the sake of party management. So what qualities should a leader look for, I think? Thank you. I'm going to take one question from online uh, from someone called Ben. Um, very often ministers are harangued in public for things completely beyond their control. Would the job of ministers be easier if backbench MPs, uh, particularly in the opposition, had a better idea of what ministers do? Or is that just politics? Um, so I'm going to suggest that we don't all answer all of those questions. Um, I think uh, maybe, uh, Anne, you'd like to take the one about um, uh, qualities that people should look for in terms of uh, leadership for, for politicians, although obviously everyone is welcome to answer any of these. Um, but uh, Angela, do you want to start with this question about what it's like to transition from being an MP in the interest of an MP to being a minister? Um, well, I mean, there are many aspects of being a member of parliament that 
um, are very localised. And it's one of the glories of our system, I think, that you do have a patch to look after. And so you, you, you do advise surgeries, you're there, you go and see things at, at, at the very sort of front line, be it of um, public services or delivery in your own area. And certainly when I became minister responsible for... Um, regeneration. I had an element of every regeneration um, initiative that we inherited in the department in my own patch. And so when civil servants said, oh, it's wonderful, it's done this, I could say, well, actually, it isn't, because <laughs> this was our experience of it. So you can bring to ministerial office your own um, sort of experiences of how these big sort of things that the government does actually manifest locally. And I think that helps you be a better minister because that's a kind of feedback loop. And it's the reason why whenever I visited any civil servants in any part of the country as a minister, I used to ask to see the local trade unions without the managers present so I could find out what was actually going on locally. And they hated that. You could hear them hovering outside the door. But I, I actually think that feedback loops and trying to find out not what it says in, the, in your box paper, um, in your submission of what's happening, finding out what's actually happening is quite an important reality check. So that's answering your question the other way around, really. I mean, the feedback loops are quite important. And I think I have always found that my constituents really understood that I was off doing ministerial things and were quite proud of the fact that I'd got to be a minister. Um, I kept up with my advice surgeries. I kept up with all my um, uh, casework. Um, and so I was around and about available to them um, to do what I normally did. So it, it's, it's not a nine to five job um, being a minister on top and having three boxes a night, which is what I, I had when I, because junior ministers get all the, all the other stuff to do. I, was, I nearly used a phrase then. <laughs> um, but junior ministers get a lot of box work on top, you know, clearing everything out, lots and lots of, I think they've stopped doing it now, but um, signing lots of letters, um, which really keeps your eye on the ball. So, I think those feedback loops are really important and a really important part of our system, although it can be quite exhausting for the minister concerned. And what qualities ought party leaders to look for in ministers? So actually it's quite interesting because um, Angela in her answer gave um, something that I think is incredibly important that should be looked for when appointing ministers and that is um, the ability to accept accountability. Um, that's really what she was saying, right? At a local level, she learned how, actually that she had to um, accept the accountability for some of the local results that were achieved and inform herself about them. And so I think good ministers will do that. They will want to set objectives. They will want to hold themselves to account. They will want to hold others to account. They will do so with a degree that unlike um, the, the comment Marie made, less ego, more empathy, I think would be an incredibly important um, um, aspect. Mm. And, and I do think, actually, there are public servants who have those qualities, I really do. And, and we need to look for them more. 
uh, the ones who listen, the ones who learn, the ones who have empathy, the ones who are clear communicators, the ones who want to be held to account and achieve things. These are, I think the gentleman here said, life skills. Um, they're what make good leaders in the private sector as well as in government. And, and really, there's a huge overlap in these traits. Um, and I know we like to think that it's all very different, but actually, it's less different than we think. And so, therefore, it can be learned. Marie, this online question, do you think backbenchers understand enough about what it's like to be in government and to be a minister? Well, I think, I think the question was, um, was it partly about the abuse that ministers get? <coughs> yes, I think it was talking it. about how the, how the op I think, I think the question is about how they're harangued in public by the media, yes, but then the question goes on to As a, the role of opposition backbenchers in that. What? So the question kind of reminded me of like, there was a really interesting study on fake news and actually if you talk to people, so if people read something that's not true but they want to believe online and then you explain to them that it's factually incorrect, actually a sizable minority is still like, eh, I'm just going to keep believing it. Um, and, I, and, and this might be incredibly cynical of me, but I don't believe that, you know. But I think politics is, can be a disingenuous business, because of course it is, and that's not always bad, I think. Um, so, so I'm not convinced that backbenchers can occasionally, you know, harangue uh, ministers purely because they don't understand the job of ministers. I think they do it because politics is occasionally a bit of a dirty business, and, you, you know, you, can, you get a punch in whenever you can. Um, so, but... Yeah. I mean, on, on that, yeah. uh, we, we, we had a debate not long ago about um, the, um, the contaminated blood issue. Mm. Um, it was a backbench business debate on a Thursday, so no vote. And there were backbench members of parliament from all sides. Um, they weren't haranguing, but they were, they were disapproving of the lack of... Um, uh, progress on dealing with the victims of the contaminated blood scandal, even though it had been the uh, sort of uh, action had been promised and promised and promised and promised mm. and never ever ever delivered. And many of the victims, some of whom were named on all sides of the house, people's constituents who'd come to see them mm. about this, often years earlier, were dying um, and with still no restitution. So, I mean, the, it's not often covered, this side of what Parliament does, but people who have constituents who've been involved in something like that, you come across it in your advice surgery, you then find there are loads of other people who've got a similar thing, and you work often cross-party. Anyone who's got a constituent um, can, can then do this. And, I mean, that is accountability. Why isn't the government doing anything? Probably because it costs too much. And then, and so you listen to this drivel coming out, this excuse, you know, and you've got the families often in the gallery watching, listening to this, you know, sort of lame, let's put it off even longer stuff. I mean, again, that is what accountability is about, and it's what, a, it's what having a, you know, I will, once the boundary changes happen, have 70-odd thousand um, voters to whom I'm directly accountable who will come to me about stuff and expect me to do things and Parliament is a place where you can get a minister who's at that moment responsible on the record and say why haven't you done this what is going on what are you going to do about it Tim what does our archive show about this experience of people coming from opposition and then becoming ministers and 
what that sort of change of perspective looks like. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really interesting question and obviously potentially quite relevant um, in the next year or so, uh, depending on what happens. So one of the big things that people talk about is actually the kind of just the enormity of government is so much bigger than being um, in opposition. So in opposition, your offices tend to be quite close together. You have each shadow minister maybe has two or three advisors. Then this happened in obviously 97 when Labour came in, 2010, the, the, with the coalition, the ministers are then split up into their departments. They have thousands of civil servants working to them. DWP, I think, has tens of thousands of officials and there's six ministers at the top of it. So, you know, they're suddenly in charge of these enormous empires of people, but they're much more isolated. They're much more removed from their colleagues. They find that quite difficult to kind of, folk, uh, I think, you know, build the kind of party programme, work out, uh, are we all pulling in the same direction? But also from a personal point of view, it's very isolating. You are suddenly the one person at the top of this huge pyramid. Everybody's looking to you for answers. Everybody's looking to you to, <coughs> to account. Uh, and it is, it is a big shift from being in opposition. I think the other thing which is related is when we've had long periods of opposition or long periods of part, one party in government and one party in opposition as we've had over the last few decades, when there is a change, people aren't used to actually being the decision maker. You know, they are used to criticizing and being the opposition. So in, in the late noughties, the Conservatives, their job was to criticize everything that Gordon Brown's government did. And for the last 13 years, the Labour Party's job has been to criticize everything that the government does. If Labour gets into government, they will have, there will be people who suddenly have to deal with, going to Marie's point about, you know, being slightly disingenuous perhaps, they won't be able to be disingenuous. They will have to engage in the detail. They will have to engage, okay, okay, we can do this and we can't do this and I'm going to have to explain this in a way that sort of passes muster in the Commons and on the news and so on and so forth. And it's going to, I think the people we've spoken to say that that sort of needing to get under the skin of things and really know the detail of everything and also realise actually there are some things the government just can't do and I have to be the person to go on the Today programme and say we can't fix this is really difficult because having been in opposition it's much easier to say, why is nobody fixing this? Mm. And just as a very um, brief note as well, so I wonder how much, like talking about that kind of move from opposition to government, like they are very different jobs, I think, being a shadow minister, shadow secretary of state to being into government. And I suspect that actually, with it, you know, every time that kind of shift happens, some people probably find that they're not suited at all to actual government, like, which is not no bad thing, you know, no crime at all. But it is a very different thing, you know, I think, as a member of a shadow cabinet, you do have to be an attention seeker, or I guess, you know, trying to understand how to get attention, how to criticise stuff in a way that's both, you know, reasonable, but also eye-catching, etc. There's so much you have to do in that very specific gig, which means that if you're very good at it, it is actually, you know, possible that you will not be good at the very different job of being a government minister, and I feel like that's not something that's always necessarily discussed. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that will help this, and I think the civil service can play a role here. I heard a senior civil servant say, this was a permsec level person, that for the first time ever, they were going to get together with their colleagues from all other departments. Mm. And I heard that and I thought, my goodness. Like, you cannot imagine being in a large private sector organization where you had very senior colleagues who actually never met their very senior colleagues from other divisions or other areas of the organization. And, and I, I really think the civil service needs to get much more agile at cross-departmental collaboration, setting prioritization, looking at where conflicts are occurring because 
the policies don't add up. And I think if they did that job more frequently and better, and again, training would help, that they would actually help the ministers <laughs> who need to also then do more of that, perhaps outside of just cabinet meetings. My experience of that um, is that some of that used to go, um, it, but Whitehall, it was very siloed when I was there. I don't know whether it's got any less siloed in the, in the time I've been away, but I doubt it. Um, and the place where that was meant to happen was actually in the cabinet subcommittees uh, where you get um, representatives of various departments that have to meet together to decide on whatever the subcommittee's about. Um, and I could always tell who the good ministers were because they didn't just sit there and read by rote the briefing that their own department had given them. They actually engaged in what the government should be doing across the piece um, to get whatever it was solved or dealt with, what the subcommittee was about. You could always tell um, those that were, were, were not thinking in that way and that were just very siloed themselves. And again, naming no names. We have really nearly run out of time. We are running over, but I just want to put one last question and ask all the panellists to answer it briefly, if you would. We conclude every Minister's Reflect interview by asking uh, the interviewee what advice they would give to a new minister. And so I'd like to go across the panel and ask them for the one piece of advice that they would give to someone coming into ministerial office. Tim, I'm going to be unfair and start with you. I knew this question was coming. <laughs> but you wrote the question right. I so. helped write, write these <laughs> questions, but I haven't prepared an answer. I think based on the conversations that we have with ministers, um, it's about uh, two things. One, knowing your priorities, knowing what you want to achieve, because as we've kind of alluded to, you know, you're only in that job for a very short period of time. You have to... You, know, you can get sucked into just dealing with the day-to-day -day and actually you need to know why, you want, why you're there. And then secondly, it's being a decent person and working with, working with the colleagues that you will inherit. As, as Anne says, you know, you can't get rid of everyone. You, you have to deal with the system in the way it is and be nice about it. Anne? Um, so really it is about being aware of the impact of your own behaviour and thinking carefully about how, therefore, you're going to behave. Very good, thank you. Angela? Um, get your box, go to the third one of the ones that they give you every night, turn everything upside down and you'll find the really important things. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, I doesn't know that, that. I feel like that was a really good one to end on. <laughs> but, um, uh, no, probably I think, you know, before you get sucked into the hurricane of ministerial life, probably take as long as you can, even if that's just an evening, to properly sit with yourself and figure out, again, like both priorities and also have an honest chat with yourself about, you know, where you may mess up and where you may succeed, etc. And also, you know, who you may bring in if you can bring in people, etc. But yes, yeah, so I think, yeah, just sit with yourself for at least a bit and try and figure out as much as you can before you end up joining the kind of madness of Whitehall life. Thank you very much. So that is all we have time for today. Thank you to everyone for joining us. Um, today we've had a really rich discussion. I think we've, we've looked at the realities of being a minister, how the civil service can work with ministers, what academics can learn from our Ministers Reflect archive, how ministers' roles change in different governments, um, and finally, uh, in this discussion, what makes a good minister. And I think that in the current context, with news of an impending reshuffle potentially, but of course uh, everybody looking ahead to the uh, definite reality that there is going to be an election at some point next year, thinking about these questions about uh, how ministers can be good at their jobs is uh, more important than ever. 
so a final sales pitch for the Minister's Reflect archive. It's got 150 fantastic uh, interviews with ministers from every government uh, since that of Thatcher. And I think it really does provide a unique insight uh, into how former ministers have approached their roles. You can find it all um, on our website, um, as well as lots of information about the IFG Academy, uh, which is our learning and development arm uh, and helps those working in government understand uh, what they can do to improve it and those outside government how to engage with it. Um, and finally, the most important news of the day is that there are drinks and snacks in the dining room uh, <laughs> and you can speak to all our, our colleagues, panellists and other attendees. So will you join me in thanking the panel? <laughs>